What's up, guys? Rachel Lindsay here, and I am teaming up with your favorite Ringer podcasters to deliver the Bravo drama and news that you've been craving on Morally Corrupt. It's the show about all things Bravo, from the housewives to summer house and everything in between. We'll be mentioning it all every week. Check it out on Spotify and TheRinger.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Dad, I will say, I ended up in the cutting room floor in this documentary. I did a whole interview. <laughs> you didn't come through, Larry. You didn't come I did, through. I didn't bring the heat, I guess. I don't know what it was. You know? you know what's so funny? You know, you do all these interviews, and usually what happens is a lot of people say the same thing. Yeah. And so it may sure. be that someone said the exact same thing. I just but, didn't rate yeah. high enough on the scale of saying that same thing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you said the same thing as John Stewart, Larry. Guess who we're going to pick? <laughs> <laughs> you know what's so funny is I did um, it's all some good. of the interviews, and my co-director, Michael Bonfiglio, he did most of the interviews. He's the one who yeah. spoke to you. And I yeah. talked to Stephen Colbert and John Stewart, and they were so eloquent yes, in talking were. about it. And I'm so dumb. Like, that's yeah. why I can't talk in a documentary because I don't know the words. They have metaphors. and They were very they're eloquent. telling stories. Uh, so it, it's an art form. We need actually am watching them. In fact, let's go ahead and just start because we can talk about this too. Oh, I uh, thought this was the podcast. Well, maybe we'll have the soft way in because we could do that too. You know, so why don't I just do that? Hey guys, you're listening to Black on the Air. Welcome. This is Larry Wilmore. Of course, usually I do kind of a way in, but we're doing a little different because I got my boy Judd Apatow responsible for us laughing over like the past 30-something years, you guys. He's responsible for a lot of laughs. There's a lot of shit going on in the world. We're going to spend some time with the guy responsible for making us laugh. And he's out with a new documentary about one of the most important and funniest comedians of our time, George Carlin's American Dream, which I believe is, is going to be on HBO. May 20 and uh, HBO Max. You can stream it. HBO Max. Judd Apatow, welcome to Black on the Air. Welcome back to Black on the Air, Judd. It's good to see you as always. How you doing? Pete. Yes. Yes, I know. Look at the SNL thing. You know, how many times does somebody get to be on something? I always appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy. This was a special one because we share a love of this guy, George Carlin. I mean, so many comedians, there's so much affection for Carlin, you know, that puts him different. Like, I love Groucho, but it's not the same as like when I think of people like Pryor and Carlin. It's just in a different category, you know. Um, what, what, what made you want to? do this like why did you think man we gotta we gotta do something on george i know i got a call i was asked to do it by hbo and at first i was scared because i didn't know george carlin i knew gary shandling very well and i could you know yeah. express what i knew about him as a person right and i wondered how do you do it when you don't know the person and you don't have access to the person because i did yeah. a documentary about the avet brothers and i got to spend a lot of time with them and uh, you know, Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry for 30 sure. and they're around to tell their story. But I thought it's obviously I got into comedy because of George Carlin. You know, we all had the George Carlin records. Mm -hmm. 
we had the Cosby records. I had Lenny Bruce records. Those were the first three comedians in the house. Mm -hmm. And I think listening to him program my brain about how you break mm -hmm. down a subject because right. he looked at everything from every possible angle. He was obsessed with words, yeah, question really. authority, but he also did very puerile, hilarious things, you know, tons of stuff, breaking down curse words and language. And so that was important to me. And I also just thought it was fascinating that every time something happens in politics and public life, mm -hmm. George Carlin bits start going around and he trends. That's so true. And it's fascinating that no one else trends. Yeah. I mean, it's not like when the Roe vs. Wade is threatened. There's yeah. five other comics with the great bit. It's right. only this guy who died 14 I years know. ago. And a bit he did maybe 25 years ago. Sometimes they're from the 90s. That's what I mean. Yeah, Or 35 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Or 52 years I've ago. I've lost all sense of time now. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's 2022, Larry. What are you thinking of? I mean, you know, his uh, bit about abortion that went around, which was, was, was all about, you know, uh, if you're prenatal, they like you. If you're uh, yeah. preschool, you're fucked. That yeah. they don't want to take care of you the moment you're born. And it's not you know, all these anti-abortion people. They're anti-women. Yeah. And he really encapsulated a lot of people's beliefs into a, an incredible two minute and 47 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I, it felt like his material is getting stronger where other comedians the material ages out really fast. It really you does. Don't listen to Lenny Bruce anymore. No. This is a Bill Hicks really anymore. I mean, a lot of the great political people uh, disappear. Mort Saul's material disappeared and his stuff. It's so philosophical and big picture that it, mm -hmm. it becomes more applicable. Well, it's interesting because I think both of his, categories are true for that like to me a place where my stuff is still funny you know if you did that on stage today i think it would still get laughs Absolutely. you know because it's it's general in the sense but it's still about something too which is yes. it's about territory and that kind of stuff which is so funny you know and the way he broke down things but you're right about that but i don't know if carlin is appreciated by the public really in the way that he should be. Is that another reason for doing this, do you think? Because I don't think, amongst us, we say that. But if I ask the average person, I don't know if Carlin's going to be high on the list immediately until you start telling them, they go, oh, that's right, he did that. Well, I think that the culture is turning over so fast. There's yeah. so much content that young people today don't know the odd couple ever happened. <laughs> no cash. I mean, as a yeah. joke on stage, I'll find a young person in the crowd and I'll say, have you ever heard of Car 54? Where are you? Have you ever heard of the Dick Van Dyke show? Have you ever heard of Honeymooners? Have you ever heard mm -hmm. of uh, Happy Days? Have you ever heard of Suddenly Susan? Have you ever heard of Falcon Crest? And I just mm -hmm. keep going closer to now and to see how long it takes them to say, oh, 30 Rock. I saw 30 Rock. Mm -hmm. And it's the same for comedy that even though it's great, I don't know if a 16 year old, unless they're obsessed with comedy, is looking backwards because right. there's so much new stuff. But we did, Joe. We looked backwards. We're nerds. We're nerds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. Like, I knew all about those comedians. You, did, you yeah. weren't alive when Lenny Bruce was doing that stuff, but like you said, you know who he is. You know? I was looking up Buster Keaton. I was a weird... Yes, I'm a huge Buster Keaton fan. I just we had... We were talking about it on my pod. Like, I know all those people. You know? There's a cutoff point where people... 
weren't interested in looking back, I think. Well, black and white was a big thing. And I also sometimes think it's the look of the video. Like, if yeah, you look at yeah. an old Bob Newhart show or the Mary Tyler Moore show, it looks a little different. It's a little degraded. Yeah. And I think just like maybe we didn't watch Charlie Chaplin as much. Although, man, I yeah. used to love the Abbott and Costello black and white movies. Sure, as sure. As a kid. But I'm such a hoarder that for me, mm-hmm. I find it tragic that if I find a George Carlin routine, like he does the bit uh, about how the game of golf is this racist game where white people right. come, uh, you know, get together to carve up America and <laughs> we can give golf courses to the homeless. And he does it yeah. on Arsenio and it's just a, an amazing performance, but I would be so sad to know that it disappeared down the digital black hole and was never yeah. seen again. So one of the reasons why I like making documentaries is I like to find things and organize them so a young person might discover who George Carlin is and then maybe watch all the specials. Maybe this is like the path in. Sure. Yeah, that is interesting because some things aren't, they don't make it to albums or they don't make it to a formal performance, but they're still great moments. Like I still remember moments Richard Pryor had on Carson where he made Johnny laugh, you know, <laughs> where Johnny like touched his arm and said, don't touch me. You know, like <laughs> it was right after the fire thing. And it was one of, I remember my brother and I thinking that was one of the funniest moments we ever saw on television, the way he reacted. You yeah. Know? And it makes me sad that those aren't available but that yeah. is how I am. That's like a mental problem I have. That's like a hoarding thing. Sure. I, I I think when there's these magic moments happen, I want them to be seen by other people. I mean, when I was doing the Gary Shandling documentary, I found like every set he did at the Comedy Magic Club in the last 15 years of his life, they had taped. Wow. And some of them had jokes that maybe he only did that night. And, yeah. and and I love right. putting them in the documentary and going, look sure. at this little gold nugget that, exactly. that I found. I remember I looked at his cork board and he had a joke and I never heard him say the joke. Yeah. And it just said, people say to me, where were you on 9-11? And I say, which one? I had 28 bad 9-11. <laughs> And I don't know if he ever told that that joke, but that's also why, you know, I, I just put out that book, Sicker in the Head, where I interview comedians, because yeah. I love cataloging this, because I always come at it as a fan, as a comedy right. nerd. I love asking people, I like asking people how they did it, and also, how are you doing? Are you going insane? How are, yeah. are you evolving as a person? How has your trauma affected the rest of your life? How are you yeah. parenting? How are you keeping fresh in your work? Are you getting burnt out? Or Because Carlin, I mean, Colbert says it. He was like the Beatles. Like, it was Love Me Do, and it did turn into Sgt. Pepper. He kept yeah. changing. And the most fascinating detail, I thought, was that he saw Sam Kinison, and he said, yeah. I don't want to live in this guy's dust. And for the yeah. next 20 years, he, he must have seen Kinison in like 85, 86. Right. He lived till 2008. He was like... I'm not going to be the soft comedian around this guy. And he went harder than Kinison. And his priorities kind of changed, it seemed, too. As, as you show in the beginning, where he just wanted to be like Danny Kaye, you know, wanted to be in the movies, wanted to be a comedian, mm-hmm. you know. And later on, he just wanted to be a truth teller. Well, the world was changing so fast. So he started yeah. doing stand-up in 1960, 
Uh, and he was in a comedy team with Jack Burns, who later on was in a comedy team called Burns and Schreiber. Burns and Schreiber, I remember that. And for yeah, you yeah. hardcore comedy fans, when Andy Kaufman was on Fridays, Jack Burns yeah. was one of the producers, and there was a sketch, and in the middle of the sketch, Andy Kaufman broke the sketch and started saying he didn't think it was funny, and suddenly Jack Burns comes on stage, and they all start screaming at each other because it was live on TV, and Andy was, like, screwing up the sketch. And then right. he almost got into a fist fight in the middle of the sketch. And that was Jack Burns, the first partner. Uh, and I, it was all stage, I'm sure. Although I think when yeah. he did it, I think he it didn't was tell everyone who was in the sketch that they I think you're right. do it. Yeah. And so he was a very progressive guy. And I think he taught George about politics. And then as Vietnam went on, I think he started just feeling foolish, wearing a suit and tie, performing yeah. per- rich people hippy dippy weather man yeah, yeah. He, and he he just thought i'm not allowed to say what i want to say and i have to grow the beard and go to the the coffee houses and the colleges and it's funny that back then he thought colleges were a safe place to speak freely how times change yeah but i guess it was at the time you know um it's funny that the students were more interested in free speech <laughs> now the students are the ones trying to restrict speech you know in those places but uh, I love how, you know, for me, I also see how Carlin and Pryor are kind of linked in this, too. You know, it's interesting to see them on that same show together. Oh, yeah. You know, back in the day. They both kind of, you know, were those uh, comedy caterpillars that went into that cocoon and, you know, came out these different butterflies. Uh, Pryor was doing Cosby for a while. I mean, that was Absolutely. The, the influential person for him. And he certainly yeah. had a kid from a small town trying to get in show business and it must have been a miracle to him to have was he from like peoria yes from uh yes, exactly and from a you know brutal childhood and growing up in a grew up in a brothel a brothel and, and now you're on tv with merv griffin and john davidson you're not thinking <laughs> right, i need right. to be edgy you're just thinking i can't no. believe i'm not at the brothel and right. then they both had a thing where they would go play vegas and they were you know just these corny comedians yeah. making tons of money too, Judd. I mean, think think of the, I mean, who does that? Like, both Pryor and Carlin did the same thing. They were both making a lot of yeah. money in like twelve Vegas. grand a week in nineteen sixty eight. In the sixties, <laughs> yeah, that's crazy money. Just to get, eh, I don't know if this is working for me. It's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, just creatively, I can't do this anymore, and. You know, there aren't other examples of people doing that. It's just the two of them. So it's amazing to see yeah, it's very on rare. a show being corny. But, you know, the funny thing about the clip, because it's them on the Craft Summer Music Hour. And we say it's corny now. Yeah. But at the time, it wasn't corny. You know, I mean, it was, was just very me, like Donnie. It was Marie. just mainstream. Yeah, exactly. But they look right. thrilled to be there. They don't look like they think this is lame. I think they probably wrote the routine that they did themselves. And there's an amazing clip, I don't know if you've seen this, of Richard Pryor on the same show singing, an, I think it's a Nina Simone song, Yeah, but it's really heavy. It feels like a, like a Porgy and Bess type song. And he's an yeah. incredible singer. Like He can make you cry. And I've never seen him sing other than that. Yeah. Well, Pryor did some of those things early on where, and a lot of comedians did that, where part of their act was to show that type of thing. 
you know, yeah. they do the song at the end. But they did a lot of that stuff in vaudeville too. Where I'm a nice guy. Yeah, exactly. I'm a yeah. nice guy. <laughs> exactly. So that's it was kind of a trope that was around actually for a long time. I think it proved a certain legitimacy, but it was a very live thing more so than a television thing. So it's a, it is unusual for them to do that on television, you know. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I think there was another clip of George Carlin hosting the show and interviewing Richard Pryor that we didn't use because yeah. I, I think it was just not strong. There wasn't a moment that felt yeah. like but there's that great joke that he had where he he tells the scoreboard of that they're tied for heart attacks. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was later on. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, that's completely different, Carl, there, yeah. <laughs> Which, Which is, is ahead on too. burning yourself up. <laughs> yes, how they how they stayed linked during that time, yeah. I'm always fascinated when those transitions are made and what goes behind it. And they were both kind of, uh, drugs played a big part in that too, you know, where it can knock you off your feet a little bit, you know, it, it kind of ironically aids in the feeling lost, you know, because you're dealing with that and then you're dealing with a changing audience and everything, you know. How much did you learn about like, Carlin himself by doing this because you said you'd never met him and that type of thing. Well, I mean, in terms of the drug stuff, it was interesting because uh, he did take acid and that was part of him realizing that he wasn't his true self on stage. And yeah. I I think that he was somebody that was very different than Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor really told you who he was on stage. George Carlin didn't. He was a social commentator and yeah. he looked at the culture and he looked at you know, his childhood a little bit, but he never talked about being married. He never talked about having no, a child. No, it was not self-revealing. And, yeah. he, and, and he, he did like, he did a lot of jokes about big pharma and drugs. And he thought that people getting in trouble for pot was ridiculous. Had a lot of routines about that. But I don't think he ever did the, I was a cocaine addict and here's how terrible it is, where he, he opened yeah. up. And that was something I didn't know about, which is, I don't know if he had attention deficit issues or he was obsessive compulsive, but it almost felt like he was self-medicating with cocaine. He would take cocaine, mm -hmm. go right and listen to music, but for like six days to the point where you could go into like psychosis from it for a long time and always alone, never partying with people mm -hmm. and had a terrible addiction. And at the same time, his wife, yeah. we had met at a club and married very quickly who really supported him. She became an alcoholic. And one of the reasons seemed to be that she was home raising their daughter, Kelly, and wasn't, yeah. wasn't really allowed to pursue her dreams. And so him traveling as a comedian, you know, may have broken the spirit of his wife. So he's addicted to cocaine. She's addicted to alcohol. And they're at war in the house. And part of the story of the documentary is how they overcame that and found that found each other again and learned from it. It's, it's a really brutal and also beautiful story of people staying together till his wife died of liver cancer. We got very lucky because he was writing his autobiography and there were these tapes. It was 23 hours of him and the his, his co-writer, Tony Hendra, talking very casually, not the way he would talk on Larry King, just like the way you would just shoot the shit sitting around your living room. And that became the narration for a lot of the documentary was these oh, really honest conversations where he's just trying to tell his co-writer. Yeah. Here's what happened, and here's how I feel about my mom, and here's what New York felt like. It, it was really beautiful. I wondered where that came from. Yeah, because you're right. Carlin never really gave us that uh, on stage. You know, he there was always kind of that wall. You know, yeah. And it is arresting to hear him speak like that. You know, it's it is kind of interesting where it's almost like 
he's making the documentary now. I think so. And I think that that's what the Shanley documentary felt like. You know, yeah. I'm not a very like religious person. I try to be open and spiritual, but yeah. sometimes you really do feel guiding forces. Mm-hmm. And so when I did the Gary Shanley documentary, I really thought this is what Gary wants people to know. Like somehow mm-hmm. through our connection, through our experience, who knows what else metaphysical, this is the next project for Gary. This isn't Judd's project. This is like what Gary wanted out there. And I think it's similar for George Carlin through his daughter, Kelly, who tells a lot of the story and his brother, Patrick, who just died a few weeks ago, he was 90 years old and he's hysterical in the documentary and he really shines a light on what their childhood was like. Yeah. And he made it clear to Michael Bonfiglio when he was interviewing him that he was stoned. Like, is it okay that I'm stoned right now (laughs) at 90? Like just a real amazing, like muse for his brother. It's crazy, yeah. You can see how much that abuse that Carlin, you know, their mother took from their dad and that Patrick himself took from the father. Yeah. And the effect that that must have had on a young George, too. It kind of makes sense that there was a part of his life he was kind of maybe uncomfortable with. Well, he was, you know, he was less than a year old. His brother was six and getting physically assaulted and and their mom ran away with the two sons and they're, yeah. it's amazing that we found the papers from yeah. her wanting a divorce saying she thought that he was he could kill the kids he was really nervous for mm. George and he was a terrible alcoholic he died 8 years later of a a heart attack George Carlin said the first sign of heart problems was a visit to the cemetery <laughs> yes uh, yes but you can imagine if you're young and you don't have a a father mm-hmm. it, you would look at the world with some suspicion if your father was abusive he had a very strong flamboyant storytelling mother you know from another world really from the almost mm-hmm. the, the world of the very beginning of, of that century and mm-hmm. i could see how it would lead you to just look for bullshit everywhere yeah you know, one of the themes in here that Carlin dealt with a lot when we were talking about Kinnison is, I call it like trying to stay in line with the zeitgeist, but I feel like the zeitgeist is so finicky. I can't find it. I'm looking, Larry. I can't find the zeitgeist. Honestly, Judd, <laughs> I think if you're able to line up with it for any period of time, you're that's a great career. You've had an amazing record of lining up with that, but it's finicky. Not everybody... Yeah. We're, I, I always feel... That's an accident. Anybody that thinks they're doing that on purpose is lying to you. It's always an accident, you know. And Carlin managed to do it like several times, you know. But I wonder if we put too much emphasis on that as well, you know. Like, sometimes it's okay, I think, if a comedian was just for a certain period of time, you know. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we care about, you know, the fact that a band had four great albums and 16 shitty ones afterwards. You know, yeah. We're happy we got those four. And right. some, you know, you know, everyone's all like Bob Dylan just like cranks out a good one and you're you're delighted, but you don't need it. It's no. like, wow, time out of mind. Wow, he put out like almost his best record suddenly, like it is it is it is 60s. Uh that happens. But yeah, I mean, if you do anything good. It's a, it is kind of enough, right? Like if you, you know, if you're a band, I always think of bands. I mean, with comedians, yeah, people, they have moments. And I think a lot of comedians have their best moments later in their careers because you have to grow up and have some perspective 
and mm-hmm. and a lot of people find themselves in their 30s or their 40s but mm-hmm. he certainly i don't think was really i don't know if he was chasing the zeitgeist as much as well he was trying to stay relevant he you know to be good i think you know i think you know he obviously when he went hippie he felt like the culture's changing i don't want to be on the dad side of the culture right but after that i think he's just like a band who has a couple of good records a couple of bad records and he cranks out a couple of good ones and yes and that's kind of it like it's it's hard get 14 specials 14 That's hours crazy when you think about that i mean the yeah. fact that any of it is great is remarkable yeah. it's it's maybe the biggest output of anybody and yeah. uh you know when i went through the albums there's some terrible routines he certainly was off and also in his point of view off but the amount of greatness is shocking how many times yeah. he really has you know the best bit you've ever heard about how we're ruining the environment the best bit about amazing corporate control of the government and how how like financial entities want the you know people to not be critical thinkers he wants them dumb and uneducated just smart enough to work the machines but not smart enough to be critical thinkers who challenge authority but it's interesting because part of that to me is zeitgeisty too because we care about people who comment on that part of the world mm-hmm. you know but he i feel like he kind of opened the door to like the daily show type of comedy the sure. what oliver's doing and so we didn't work with a lot of comics who were doing that type of carlin stuff during those days you know yeah. the biggest comics weren't doing that you know no. nor were that was not being sold to the public either as the thing. He really was a unicorn during that time in terms of even how big he was and taking that risk that people, like he could have come off as a scold at any of those things. It's like, <laughs> what's wrong with this old man? You know, because it really wasn't in the zeitgeist, which is interesting, which is why it ages really well, you know? Because now it is like those things you're talking about, that whole thing about save the earth to me is still relevant today. Like I, I feel the exact same way. That is a, a lot of that is self-serving, even though it's well-intentioned. It's like, just be honest about it. You know? Yeah. Like earth, earth, I used to say that line all the time. Earth ain't going nowhere. It's the dinosaurs that left, you know, it's us. that. that I mean, he had a, a line about, he's like, uh, he was like, yeah, the earth's not going anywhere. We are. We're going to go somewhere. We're going to disappear and be extinct. Like He's like, and then people say, but what about the styrofoam? The styrofoam will be there. <laughs> yes. He goes, and he goes, you know what? Why do we think that the earth doesn't like styrofoam? Maybe <laughs> the earth will just incorporate it into some other aspect of the functioning of the planet. And yeah. it's pretty hysterical that right now, like I can feel it with the documentary, like it, it has lined up where he is a needed voice, even though yeah. he's been dead 14 years. He is speaking to us about, I mean, you know, his bits about uh, the drug problem. With It, it all relates to the opioid crisis and mm-hmm. people trying to make money off of drugs. No money in in, in uh, fixing homelessness. Yes, he is, if there was money in, in fixing homelessness, you'd see it get fixed. No one's right. who gets rich helping the homeless. And he, and he also said in one of his routines, he's like, you know, it's all about this like American bullshit. It's like, it's the glue that binds America together. It's a country yeah. that was was started by slave owners who said all men are created equal. 
And yeah. that was his basic theory of America. And you think about yeah. everything that's happening, like, oh, we have to get back to the original intent of the Constitution yeah, great by again. those yeah. people. Why <laughs> yes, do we think exactly. those people knew that? Like his piece on bombing and like Americans, we rarely bomb white countries. It's almost yeah. always brown countries. And I was like, oh, motherfucker, this thing is like, yeah. it's still true today. The, the last time we bombed white people was Germany it's because yeah. they wanted to rule the world. That's our job. <laughs> you know? I was like, oh, my God. You know, it's so true. You know? He had a, a great bit about religion, you know, where he's like, you know, they're always trying to scare you. And here's the rules. And if you don't follow them, you will burn in hell for all eternity. But he loves you. And yes. he needs money. Because apparently he's all seeing or knowing, but not good with money. <laughs> now, it's funny because we can laugh, not just at his lines, but at his style. But it yeah. was funny... I love that you showed the SCTV clip because I remember at that time laughing at that. I was a big SCTV fan. And he could have become, that could have instant dinosaured him. You know what I mean? It's so mean and so on the nose and perfect. Yes. So they, they do, a, a, they do a, I mean, I think Rick Moranis did him a few times, but that clip we show, most of it is from a parody of Death of a Salesman starring Ricardo Montalban, uh, played by Eugene Levy. As, as <laughs> Willie Loman, and then Biff and Happy are played by DeForest Kelly from Star Trek, and and George Carlin played by Rick Moranis, and right. they're at the table, and then there's a heavy moment, and and then George Carlin saying, "There's red grapes that makes red wine, and white grapes that make white wine, but there's green grapes." But no green wine. And it was so on the nose of how he spoke. And sometimes yes. the pointlessness of some of his observations. But I also thought SCTV was so mean to everyone in the best way. Like, in the best way. Because it, it didn't come off as mean so much as... Like, I never took it as mean when I was watching. Like, a, a great one was uh, uh, Play It Again Woody, where it was yeah. like Play It Again Sam, but it was Woody Allen who was like, uh, had Bob Hope as his, uh, <laughs> his content to talking yeah. to him. And it was kind of making fun of Bob Hope through Woody Allen, which is kind of weird when you think about they it. They did like Annie Hall starring George Carlin as the Woody Allen. So funny. But, and then I think Mad Magazine ripped on him. And then he got very yeah. upset because Cheech from Cheech and Chong, who was very popular. Yeah. And that was I, surprising. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, he he made fun of him because I guess he did a big deal about a big bit about peas, like eating peas or something. Uh, and yeah. he said, you know, that George Carlin was over. He's just talking about eating peas. He's not mm -hmm. talking about anything important. And that made him redouble his efforts. You know, sometimes you think about people like Kobe or Michael Jordan, and they want the enemy. Like they play mm -hmm. better because they want to be really angry at something. They want to win the away games. They look the away games are more interesting to them than the home games. And yeah, yeah. I think I think Carlin liked having someone say, mm -hmm. "I don't think you're great right now," and then he'd suddenly got like ten times better, and then he would kind of run out of gas. There's a moment in the '80s where he had a heart attack, and he just said, "You know, I realized that I I shouldn't be this upset all the time," and he mm -hmm. he consciously softened his act. Yeah, I think he thought it would give him a heart attack, and then he got edgy again. Like, he couldn't help himself but get mad again. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? 
Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. I actually met George in the early 90s at Igby's. Yes, I saw was, him there too. Yeah, and, and you know, I would have started talking to him. He was so nice, you know, and I said, hey, I saw this video of yours that you don't see much. It was this, I think it was a Columbus routine that he did or something like that, you know, that was kind of lost to time. And he's like, where is that? What's? And he wanted to know where it was, so he gave me his number and i gave him my number i was like and i'm to me i'm like i traded numbers with george carlin this is crazy you know and he actually called me a couple of times you know he's asking about it you know and it was almost like the the mel brooks story about going to lunch with carrie (laughs) green you know it's like oh shoot i think george carlin's gonna call me again about this video i don't know how to get it (laughs) i hope he doesn't call me you know but it was so cool to, to meet him back then as a you know, at that time, too. You know? I might have been there because he didn't do that at Igby's that often. That was yeah. in like West Hollywood. Well, it was uh, West L.A. Yeah. And and uh, he I remember him going there and he got up on stage and he said, you know, there's some topics people say you can't talk about and you can't make them funny. It's impossible to make them funny. And then he like started doing some really rough jokes, you know, yeah. just to say I can find ways to make these topics funny and i always remember when he was off stage he would have a lot of his act on these big note cards because his act was like music and it had to be memorized perfectly and some of the bits had like him firing off like 80 different weird words and Mm -hmm. before he went on he would just be looking at those cards i'm sure hoping that he could remember it that was interesting i thought about his act was really written like a lot of comedians some go up with an idea and they figure it out on stage you know uh, or some have something written and they they do maybe a little adjustment on stage or they get surprises. But his was, I feel, strictly written, like no ad-libbing, you know, it was. And yet he, it always seemed fresh, but there was a sense of a performative thing about what Carlin did, too. It didn't, he didn't seem connected to the audience the way some comedians are, where you're acknowledging what they're giving you back. He was always kind of a show. Right. Yeah. And in fact, there was a clip we put in the documentary where he's at the Comedy Magic Club trying out a routine. And he says, you know, not all this will work. I might screw up. But just remember, this isn't for you. It's for me. Yeah. And he he didn't like it. If people tried to talk to him, he would not talk to the crowd. If they yelled out, he would get really mad. There's one stand up special where there's someone in the crowd who just keeps trying to comment and screaming. And I remember watching it on TV because a lot of times he would do his stand up special live. It would air live, and then that was it. And I thought, oh, this guy's really fucking up this special, screaming. Yeah. But he looked at it like a theater piece, like a one-man show. And he he did have a structure where he would do like a really, like a goofy bit, a soft bit, or maybe a dirty, like a something about farts or whatever. And then mm-hmm. it would go into the military-industrial complex bit. Right, you know, right. get heavier. He, he would earn your... Joy. He'd soften them up yeah. with uh, <laughs> easily relatable fart joke. Yeah, it is weird when you think, what kind of an act is that? Okay, I'll open with the fart stuff. <laughs> I'll go into the tearing, deconstructing America stuff after the fart stuff. No, maybe I let me put one fart thing in the middle of the deconstructing yeah, exactly. America thing because you know who knows how that bit's gonna go. Yeah, we, yeah. we we all know, you know, like you have your opener. Okay, I know my opener is gonna work. And then I know my first little section is going. Then I'll go into like a little experimental new stuff that like if it bombs, I could bail and go to the bit I know works and close. (laughs) Right. 
I know this is kind of a weird question. People ask you that, but you know, you've, you know, like in your book, you talk to a lot of comedians and stuff and doing these films. What qualities do you think make a great comedian? Like somebody who we do revere for a long time. Cause, and I don't mean just funny, but I mean that, that puts them up on that different level. You know, like when I do the sick, sicker in the head books, you know, there's always people I reach out to who I feel like are in that area. You, you know, mm-hmm. like Maria Bamford, because she's so unique and imaginative, but she also talks about mm-hmm. mental health struggles and she's mm. so honest, but finds a way to make that connection with the audience and relate to them for common problems, common things that come up in life, which are challenges and turns it into something riotous and inventive. So I'm definitely an honesty person. I like Gary Goldman. Okay. I, I produced his uh, stand-up special, The Great Depression, where he, he talks about his struggles with depression, but it couldn't be funnier. And uh, I'm, I'm always attracted to that. And then I think like who else I put in like the Pantheon. I mean, I just saw Chris Rock's new set. Oh, I haven't seen it. He's working on it at the comedy cellar. And, you know, Chris does that thing where when he's trying out new jokes or working on a new set, he performs it somewhat quietly. Mm-hmm. Doesn't sell it. like He's not preaching it yet. Yeah. He's the preacher doing it. He's doing uh, none of that. And it's like, he knows if I do it quiet and it's getting huge laughs, then when I really perform it. So he's testing the ideas, right? So he's mm-hmm. not trying to trick you with performance. He wants to know that the ideas That's interesting. Are. Oh, I love that. And, uh, and, and he has that too. And, and, and people who look at life from, from different angles, every time you talk to Chris Rock in life about something, his take is not what you would expect it to be. He just... Yeah says something where you go, oh, I would never would have thought that that's the the point of view you would have on that. And and Carlin did that a lot too. His his daughter said, if people could ask him what he thinks of this time, she's like, it wouldn't be what you think it would be. You can't predict right. what it would be. Right. Because he had an opinion 30 years ago that a lot of people are having now. So imagine what he would think now, <laughs> which Actually. we might be thinking 30 years from now or something. I mean, who knows when you're kind of of your time, but not quite of it at the same time. And the world weird. has changed like with algorithms, it has changed. Yeah. social media. I mean, he was a big free speech absolutist, but he didn't come from a time where ideas were being shoved down your throat through algorithms and news. Yeah. Twitter and that type of thing. Yeah. Because he was a real like, hey, if you don't like me, change the channel. If right. you want to see my comedy, don't come to the show. And mm-hmm. that makes sense. But it doesn't make sense when it's fed to you. Uh, yeah. And and I don't know, you know what he would make of that. But he's certainly distrustful of corporate forces feeding information. He really did think there was a conscious dumbing down of America so they wouldn't ask questions. I saw a quote from him I hadn't seen before yesterday where he said, Parents don't teach kids to challenge authority because they are authority. Mm-hmm. And so they don't like from the beginning say question everything. He's like, it's not just teaching kids to read. It's teaching kids to be thoughtful about what they're hearing and to question it and be challenging of it, to be critical thinkers. That was his right. key uh, advice to people. Do you have a top five of comedians? I mean, speaking of Chris Rock, he had that movie Top Five. Yeah. I mean, for me, I like so many people that I never like breaking it down at the top five. But obviously, I always look to Carlin and Pryor because I feel like mm-hmm. as great as they were, not a lot of people get close to yeah. how strong they are. 
that mm-hmm. like it's pretty amazing that there's thousands and thousands of comedians and maybe only a few that you even dare mention in the same sentence as them. Mm-hmm. So I think their their achievement is is pretty ridiculous. And I was watching a clip of Steve Martin today. Hmm. And it really blew me away. He, he was his ta- stand up. He was no, he was talking about comedy with Howard Stern, and it was maybe an old clip. And he said, "When I studied, I was studying comedy, and I saw okay, there's like a joke a comedian does, and there's an idea and a punchline, and it surprises you in a turn." And I, and I was studying why do people laugh, but then I was thinking there's a different kind of laugh. It's like the laugh you have when you're hanging out with your friends and you're deliriously laughing, like you lose your mind laughing, and you're not even sure hmm. why you're laughing. And he said, I wanted to figure out how to get to that. Hmm. And I thought, yeah, and he he did. So he's always, uh, you know, at the top of, of my list, too. It's funny. Yeah, that desire to have the audience do that. I was just talking to Barry Levinson the other week, and, you know, he wrote with Mel Brooks, you know, at yeah. a certain time. And he said, Mel would do that, where he was like, no, this has to be the laugh that knocks them out of the seat type of laugh. Like, he would break down the type of laugh it had to yeah. be. Like this is the laugh. It's this, but no, this laugh has to. It has to knock them out of the seat. Type of laugh, you know. He was very conscious of even the intensity of the type of laugh that certain jokes needed to have compared to other jokes. Well, he he had that great story where where uh, Mel Brooks was working on uh, on Blazing Saddles, and mm-hmm. the jokes are just so out there and so harsh. He's going for it, yeah. and he said to the head of the studio, "Can I do this?" And John Kelly, the head of the studio, said, well, if you're going to walk up to the bell, you better ring it. Right. And I don't think many people even attempt to get laughs of that size. People don't yeah. even realize that that is the goal is pandemonium. There's yeah. not many people like that. Well, Bernie Mac. I mean, Bernie Mac was one of those uh, people absolutely. Who, who could knock you out of your seat. Absolutely. Yeah. Where do you put people like Chappelle and Rock in that pantheon? Because they're kind of... They're intertwined but different in that type of thing. They're, I think they're two of the biggest of our time right now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think people get a full sense of Chappelle like out in the out in the world because a lot of what Chappelle does is about seeing him at midnight at a club do two and a half hours. Right. Like there's an art form to what Dave Chappelle does that you know people do talk about in terms of jazz. Yeah. That, you're not going to see at a hockey stadium. Yeah. You know, and he does do clubs. You know, he gets ready for the big mm-hmm. tour by going to the comedy works in Denver. Or, but, you know, when you see him late at night and, and he's really riffing, you get a different experience. Yeah. Yeah. When he's exploring ideas and people like, you know, uh, Will Sylvans is yelling out what happened in the news that day and he's just trying to find his point of view and mm-hmm. to see what he thinks of in the moment. Uh, is pretty remarkable and you know rock i you know i love watching rock work out his act because he's just he's just so inventive and so smart and works so hard to make to make it great i think in a similar way to carlin you know he's trying to make it like perfect syllable by syllable syllable but the ideas are so strong yeah the writing is so so good um, I mean, I remember I used to see Rock when uh, in the early '90s, maybe in the late '80s, because he was and friends he was with just starting out. Yeah, he was friends with Sandler from the comic strip, and his act was like very good. But then there was like a couple of jokes were like that were like the best jokes you've ever heard in your life. Yeah, and then a few years later, 
the whole act was that good. Well, he consciously did that. I talked to Chris about that years ago. He he actually went to the Museum of Television and Radio back then and was like looking at video of comedians and breaking it down because he was at a point where he was not satisfied he knew he could do better but he didn't know how there was something else than just him thinking something was funny you know <laughs> and to do that midstream like a lot of people might do that in the beginning i want to be a stand-up how do i do that you know but for him to course correct consciously like that in the way that he did i thought was real interesting and to do it in terms of not just what i want to say but technique like yeah. with Carlin and Pryor, it was more about content, you know, but with Rocket was also about technique. You know, I think he watched everybody from uh, Bob Newhart, you know, to the Cosby stuff, to a lot of this. It was kind of interesting. You know? And I think Carlin, like at some point, I think it it's like after a place for my stuff, like the Carlin and Carnegie Hall set in the 80s where it got different. It, it became different. It yeah. became you know, a, an eight minute rant yeah. on something. Yeah. And he found new rhythms and he, he had a different attitude on stage. And he, he took you know, some of it, you know, for moments like more seriously, like a prophet, like he was warning. The yeah. Crowd. He became kind of that at the end. He, he is like a prophet, you know, it's like, uh, the type of stuff Python used to make fun of, <laughs> those type of projects and stuff, you know. That's what he seems like. And some know. people thought it was too dark. I mean, in the in the documentary, Stephen Colbert said he lost me for a while. It was too dark. Yeah. But I think the world has gotten so much worse since he died Yeah, that you look at it and you think, well, maybe it wasn't dark enough. It's not like the world got better. Yeah. I mean, not that comedy's supposed to do that, but he certainly was saying, look out, bad stuff's coming, and that bad stuff is happening now. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because... You know, I'm not fully on the train of comedian's job has to do that type of stuff, you know? Yeah, like It's fine, but, like, people think that comedians have to be responsible for social change. You know, like, I've heard people say, you know, if only Jon Stewart had stayed in the air, maybe Trump would have been elected. I'm like, no, that's yeah. not Jon Stewart's job, you know? That's an activist job, or people telling you to go to vote. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, was interviewing Samantha B for Sicker in the Head, and she said, I don't think my jokes change anyone's mind. She's like, all I'm really doing is maybe entertaining the troops, yeah, people who agree with me and letting them know that they're not crazy. Right. But I don't think anyone's mind has changed. Although I would say that maybe if you're between 12 and 18 and you're developing your your views on things if you watch trevor noah or somebody like that it might influence where you land i mean it's possible but people think it's design is social change you yeah know? yeah and that's yeah, right I'm, yeah i have a different opinion i go no like there was a whole critique of tina fey and saturday night live i think it was malcolm gladwell because you know I, I got an argument to him like he thought she wasn't doing her job because she made fun of Sarah Palin and it made her sympathetic. I'm like, what the fuck kind of critique is that? You know, <laughs> her job is to get laughs. <laughs> you know, It's not to help the Democratic Party. What comedian, unless you're telling me the com she's the head of the DNC and her job is to help the Democratic Party, you're going to like, no, she was the head writer of Saturday Night Live and a performer. That was her job was to get laughs. Well, I think that's something that some people talk about, which is, do we make themes things seem less scary when we do comedy about it? Like I've thought about 
all the jokes about Putin and Putin riding a horse with no shirt on. Right. And did we make him kind of a harmless caricature? We did really talk about him brutalizing Syria and Chechnya in, in the world of comedy. Somehow the danger isn't yeah. there, but maybe that's not where it should be in the first place. But definitely right. now that you go, no, Putin will murder all of you. He is happy to blow up the hospital. I would argue it. it's a bit self-importance to think that we have that kind of influence. You know, yeah. that's what I would argue. It's like, Comedians, I don't think we're as influential as you think that might be. That our critique of somebody like Putin is a game changer in the world, you know. Yeah, and and I think that Carlin said, you know, I just want the audience to know I've been thinking. Yeah, he and I love that. Said, love he never that. said it's changing anyone's mind, and he was a comedian first. He was an entertainer first, and a lot of it, it's a comedic stance. Yeah, like I'm going to go so dark, also because it's funny. It's yeah. funny as a character in a position. And people say, uh, you know, is it is it too dark? Well, I think, you know, like there's a bit where he's like, I like when bad things happen. He has a bit that was called, I kind of like it when a lot of people die. Wow. And, <laughs> and he would just run through all these scenarios. Yeah. I like it when a hospital's on fire and someone with crutches jumps out the window. And I like, you know, and I, you know, I think he was commenting on this instinct people have to like when there's a wreck at a car race mm -hmm. and and he and he he was like i know how you guys feel down deep there's a part of you that's amused by the worst of us hmm. and he at the end of his life looked at the world and how people treated each other as if he wasn't a part of it he liked to be like a spectator like he said you know when you're born in this world you get a ticket to the freak show and when you're born in America, you get a front row seat. And, nice. the, and in his last sets, it was all about, I think it's funny that you're ruining the world and killing each other. It's mm. hilarious. It makes me happy. Mm. And I don't think it did make him happy. And I don't think he wanted anyone to ever get hurt. But it was a joke stance to say, look how fucking ridiculous this is. That we had this earth and all these people and what a mess we're making. Mm -hmm. you know, it, and so by exaggerating it, you know, he is, it is a wake-up call. Like, I'm just going to laugh at this mess. Now that Carlin is said and done, he passed away in 2008, was it? Yeah. When you look at the whole body of work, do you have your favorite? Like, what is the thing when you think of George Carlin, if you were going to tell somebody and never heard of him, what would be mm -hmm. the, the first bit that you would share with them to let, for them to go, you're right, that motherfucker's funny. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what I mean? Because there's good stuff in other in different eras, you know. I mean, is there anything funnier than piss shit, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits? I mean, the, and the bigger bit about cursing, yeah. the, the word fuck, and he breaks down the word fuck and how it's used yeah. in movies and television and in life, and then he does shit, and he breaks down the word shit and all the, yeah. uh, you know, like, you can prick your finger, but you can't <laughs> finger your prick. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, those were pretty great bits when I was a kid. I loved the that he was pointing out the hypocrisy of people thinking I couldn't handle hearing it. Yeah, as yes. a kid, like I can handle it, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. It's hard to beat that in terms of the whole picture of it. You know, it was groundbreaking. It was funny. It was dangerous, but it didn't lose its its comedy. It wasn't. Yeah. 
it wasn't scoldy, you know, or that type. Of, he's young, man, you know. He's got also uh, even his his persona at that time was perfect for that. It probably is the purest Carlin, you know, yes. that whole era. The a place for my stuff was the thing that for me was just I don't know why it hit me just at the right time in terms of how it was constructed and the the fo- even the football baseball thing was so funny, you know. Just the differences, you know, and it to me it still makes me laugh today. Those those comparisons. His he he was the best person at comparing things. There there's nobody better than George Carlin because I always said definitions give you information, but distinctions provide you clarity. You know, and he was giving us clarity all the time by making these distinctions by his comparisons. You know, yeah, like clearing up fuzziness for us and and you're you're right the whole thing about language by showing us how the same word and it's just how it's used is different it's so clarifying for us yeah. this why are we such prudes around this you know yeah like the, the idea that we're being condescended to yeah yeah exactly that that, you know oh what will happen if we hear this information or yes. hear this word and he was also fascinated by the words that are created by society or the the government to trick people like you know when we you know when we murder everyone in the village we depopulate the area oh, and yeah and he talked about the word shell shock and how that word yeah has been turned into post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't sound as bad yeah and uh, the evolution of the different words for the you know the the pain people experience from being in combat and i think that he pointed out all this Orwellian language that makes it easier to handle the horrors that the government creates. To me, nobody was better with the words than George Carlin as a comedian. No one, yeah. you know, and you could go his entire, that's the one unifying thing through all of his great, even in his hippy dippy weatherman phase, his facility with language and giving that to us as the way in which, you know, he was communicating like to me, that's that was his brilliance out of everything, you know. And those books, I mean, he has all these books. They're just lists of every other curse you can't say. So, like, he he come up like a hundred more dirty words you can't say on TV, and then run them. Right, the seven thousand words you can't say on TV, <laughs> which is crazy. Well, congrats, Ben. It's such a good, uh, it's such a good special, and. You know, Kelly, who's a friend, uh, I've known Kelly for a while now, and I know how passionate she is about her dad's legacy and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I give her credit for having all that stuff on screen. I mean, the stuff with her mom can't be easy, you know, sharing some of that. It's not all pretty, you know. It's really nice to have that as part of the story because I think that helps us relate to this journey as well. You know, yeah. and I I love the fact that they stayed together. It's great. And he found love again with Sally Wade yeah. later in his life. And and when he did his darkest material, he was at his happiest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In that period. Yeah. And or at least another happy period. And Kelly was saying to me this morning that she likes that people see him as a real person right. and that that the story of her family isn't different than the story of everybody's family. Yeah. You know, it, it is a universal struggle even though he was a famous comedian, just what they went through. Yeah. George Carlin's American Dream. HBO, HBO Max, May 20th. Is that what it is? May 20th. See, I remember that. I know some of these things I keep in my head. Um, 
I'm not going to be salty, like I said, about being on the cutting room floor. It's okay. I get it, Judd. You're a high. You're one of these highfalutin directors. You're, you know, particular taste in this thing. I just know. I'm going to blame others for it. I'm going to blame others. I'm going to say that that was. I'm going to say right now it was a mistake. I'm just saying. I I thought you could have heard from more brothers. Is all I got to say. You know. I am about to go re-edit it before it airs. (laughs) Um, Thanks so much, Judd. As always, man, it's a joy to have you on. Good luck with it and everything else. Thank you. Thanks, Larry.